Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and I want to welcome you to Season 3 of Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with authentic and courageous leaders from all over the globe. You will learn from leaders you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolkit. Leadership belongs to all of us. It's not measured by stature or title. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. You know, every week when you listen to this show and I'm recording it with a new heart centered leader from somewhere else around the globe. It continues to amaze me the alignment and the receiving of meeting like-minded individuals. And I want to give a huge shout out today to Alain Hunkins, who was on the show in season one. And you should listen to that episode because it was really, really good. But Alain has continued to talk about the show. He has recommended so many amazing leaders to be on the show. And he recommended this wonderful woman today, Michelle Johnston. And I wanna I wanna just tell you before I I bring her in, I feel on a visceral level that she is an ally. I feel she's a little farther down the road. She's an executive coach. She's a faculty member. She's an author. We have so many synergies and it's like we're parallel. And I've said to her book has just wrapped around my soul. She has eloquently talked about connection and everything we talk about on this show. And I think you're going to enjoy this one. So grab a cup of coffee and and pull up a chair because this is going to be a really, really special episode. So Michelle, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Deb. I hope you can hear my voice, how happy I am to be with you today. Well, I said to you before we hit record, I'm getting goosebumps right now. Like you are just a kindred spirit and, and this book just encompasses what I live, what I talk about, what I preach, what I coach. And it's lovely to have an ally like you in this space. So I've changed things up a little bit for season three. And as much as I would love to read your extensive bio, which is amazing, I would love you, before we get into our interview, share a little bit of your bio, which I like to call on this show now, a little bit of your life story. How did we get to the Michelle Johnston of today? Absolutely. So I was a corporate brat growing up. Um, My father is still alive. He's 77 years old and he worked for General Motors um, in the insurance and then the finance division his whole career. And he was one of those old school, loyal, loyal, loyal employees who just, that he wouldn't drive. He still doesn't drive anything but a General Motors car. And I wasn't allowed to either for years. I finally got permission. I'm 53. I got permission a couple years ago <laughs> to buy a car that wasn't General Motors. In any case, we moved around every two years for his job because back then when you were really good at what you did, when you worked for those big companies and they promoted you, they didn't want you to manage the people who you were just peers with. So they gave you a new market and new people. So every two years we moved from Alexandria, Virginia, Baltimore, Maryland, East Brunswick, New Jersey, Detroit, Michigan, Nashville, Tennessee, Memphis, Tennessee, Tampa, Florida, and it kept going. 
And so growing up, I was fascinated by two things. Number one, by my dad's work, because we did have dinner as a nuclear family every single night, no matter how late he got home. And the talk was mostly about General Motors, right? And and how he motivated people and culture and 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 he would create these comp- sales competitions to get his team motivated. I just thought what he did was really interesting. And then number two, what we talked about was just the new cultures of the cities that we lived in. So I became really fascinated with learning about how you adapt to people. And I, I have this moment, Deb, that I remember vividly that I write about in my book. He was going through night school. And I was sitting on his study floor in the gold shag carpeting with my overweight beagle named Penny. And I remember taking a book off the bookshelf and it was Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And I read the opening story about Dale Carnegie's dog named Tippy. And I'll never forget it. It said, Carnegie said, I learned more from Tippy about how to make friends and influence people because Tippy showed so much interest in others. Tippy loved everybody else. And he said, I realized that you'll make many, many, many more friends by showing interest in others than by trying to get everybody interested in you. And I had this aha moment, Deb, that some of the cities that I had moved in, moved to, if I kept talking about all my old friends and the old city and how fabulous everything was, and guess what? I did make those mistakes often. Like, oh my gosh, no, you don't understand. This other city that I just lived in was a amazing. The weather was so much better, right? If you spend all of your time talking about other things and trying to get people interested in you versus really saying, hey, show me your traditions, your cultures. Tell me about you. What is your story? What makes everything, you know, cool and interesting here? And and that, I think that really led to my getting a PhD, um, that led to my being interested in consulting and teaching, and it led to my being here in New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, I was recruited by a consulting firm and ended up here. You know, it's so interesting. It's another parallel that we have. So my dad was an entrepreneur and we moved every two years. Oh my goodness. So we're outliers too. Uh, So I have to ask you, are you an extrovert introvert? Yes, totally. But I just discovered this. <laughs> I'm an INFJ and I have met a lot of INFJs on this show. That's crazy. And, you know, I, I have to ask you this. I'm going to throw this in as an extra, but it's really hard to land and be part of a community when you're uprooted at all those different ages of development. Yes. And that is, I think, one of the reasons why I ended up writing the book, because I had become very adept at fitting in. And all of a sudden, it caught up with me. And I'm a young professor at Loyola. And I look around, I'm like, oh, I've got this. Okay, yet another place to fit in and figure out the culture and figure out what works and what does success look like. And I was just so used to I was really good at that. So I looked around and I got a team together of mentors who were mostly older white men who were amazing and rock stars and I wanted to be like them. And they told me exactly what they did and how to do it. And I was 28 years old and tried and tried and tried to be like them. And it finally caught up with me and I couldn't. And I was not successful. And that was my first big stumble. And my dean brought me into his office. He said, we would love for you to stay here at Loyola. This is a research um, institution, but it's also teaching. And you've got to improve your teaching scores. You're just not connecting with your students. 
And I, you know, I was baffled because I was doing everything that the star faculty members were doing. And then I read Brene Brown's book, um, The Gifts of Imperfection. And I'll be honest with you and your listeners, I cried because it was the first time that I read that you'll never really feel a sense of belonging if you're constantly trying to fit in. So I realized at that point, I had to do a lot of work and understand what in the world my story was and stop running from it and own it and really know who I was so that I could show up authentically. And then once I started seeing those struggles with some of the clients that I was coaching, that's when I realized I needed to write the book. So interestingly enough, you just answered my first question. And what a pivotal time for you at 28. It happened for me at 24. I was told I was too gregarious, that you couldn't, you know, bring your heart to work and love didn't have a place in business acumen. And one of the VPs at that company took me for lunch. And I actually thought he was going to hit on me because that had happened to me in a previous job. And I left. It was the Me Too movement before anybody talked about it. And I went, I thought I'm going for lunch. I'm in a public place. And he said, you're losing your job at five o'clock today. And he said, you're working with five other women that are twice your age. They were all divorced. They were all overweight. They were all unhappy. They were just waiting for retirement age and pension. And I get put into this division with this group of women. And I tried so hard and it didn't matter what I did. And he said to me, start your own business. And I did. And that was 32 years ago. And I never looked back. That's amazing. So as kind of mean, unkind as that sounds, it actually was kind in a way because he saw something in you that you, and he told you, you need to start your own business. Yeah. So it's this parallel with you, this ally with you. It's just so interesting to me how we've both, you know, really delved into the meaning of connection and and it's come from our own experience. And I love to talk about this on the show because I have interviewed some amazing leaders from all over the globe, multiple continents, well-educated people like yourself. And they've all said to me, it wasn't the schooling. It was me kind of looking at the trajectory of my life. Like take the initials away after my name. Let's just talk practical experience because it's relatable to all people. And our sectors don't matter because we're all in the people business, right? So your book really hits me in the heart. It really does. I'm 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 excited to finish reading it. And I, I'm gonna lead in with my second question since you are so brilliant and already answered the first one. This question has permanent residency on the show and it brings a lot of laughter. And I'm everything about imperfection, hence the name of the show. Share with us what imperfections you feel Michelle brings to her heart-centered leadership. <laughs> I'll give you a great story. Oh my gosh. So <laughs> so I have, I formed this uh, little business advisory group with two of my um, younger friends who I wanted to mentor and help. And so the three of us get together and they're just dynamos. And, and so we were throwing a little dinner party, just the three of us for one of them who was having a birthday. 
And my friend who was hosting the dinner party runs what's called the Scalp Guide New Orleans. And so she's in charge of her own company. It's this beautiful publication. She advocates for small businesses. The woman is is just great in business and really enjoys being in control. So I asked her, can I please bring blueberry cobbler for dessert? And she goes, no, 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 I got it. And I said, no, 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 I I want to. She said, okay, I usually don't let people bring anything. So that particular morning, I had a one hour window between all of my different jobs and from eight to nine. So I made two blueberry cobblers, one for the little dinner party that night and one for me because I'm a brand new empty nester. And I just brought my kid to college. It's just me. I don't cook. So I ate the blueberry cobbler for breakfast. I ate it for lunch and I ate a little bit before I walked out the door to the dinner party. So I grabbed the blueberry cobbler, run to the dinner party. She puts it in the oven. We finished this gorgeous crab meat quiche and arugula salad. And my friend takes my blueberry cobbler out of the oven, opens it up, and I accidentally brought the one that I had eaten all day. (laughs) And there was only two teeny tiny spoonfuls. And I, to this day, Deb, I can't stop laughing because I just, in the kitchen, I said, you know what, women? This is the perfect example of embracing imperfection because we all, and and my friend was like, that's why I don't let anybody do anything for dinner parties. I was like, you know what? How beautiful of a moment this is, right? Is nobody is perfect. I made a mistake. Let's laugh about it because this is funny. I think that's a pretty good, what do you think? Is that a good I think, well, I think it's great. And I also think it's strategic because you were driving home thinking, hey, I got a whole other, another one for tomorrow. <laughs> and then I, had a, I went home and took a picture. I was like, I promise you I'm not lying. I have an entirely uneaten blueberry cobbler. I think you just have to be able to laugh, you know? Well, you do. And you just brought up a really good point that we often talk about on the show. Being heart-centered is honoring, my definition, honoring your connection with others. And it's not transactional, but you can't continually give and not leave the openness to receive. And again, it, you know, we can have a whole other conversation on control and and everything else, but, but good for you. And I, I call that an heirloom memory because I'm sure you guys get together for dinner now and it's like, okay, we're not going to let Michelle bring dessert, <laughs> but you're always going to go back and, and there's instant laughter. That That's a beautiful example. I love it. Okay. Third question. My gosh, the stories in your book and the affluent stories of the people you chose. How did you decipher whose stories to put in the book? There had to be uh, some thought leadership put into this. And and how did you come down to, okay, I'm going to have X amount and really showcase a beautiful example of connection across multiple sectors. Yeah, it was pretty strategic. In the beginning, I just, I I wanted struggles and beautiful connections. So when I realized the secret sauce, that the key ingredient right now to be an effective leader was meaningful connection, that's when I was like, okay, I need to learn more about this. I need to deconstruct it. What does it look like? What does it feel like? What does it sound like? What are examples? So then that's when I was like, okay, I'm going to go and interview as many global leaders as I can. So I had to start with what I knew. So I picked people who either did a really good job of connecting or some of them I knew had struggled. So I didn't just want to present leaders who had it all figured out. I 
wanted to present some struggles as well. So I started off with clients that I knew. And then at the end of each interview, I would say, can you think of a leader who you know who could give me some really robust examples of either connection or disconnection? And then they would lead me to another leader and I would go and interview that leader. And I interviewed most of them before the pandemic. And I thought that the manuscript was totally done and ready to go off in March of 2020. And then the world shut down. And so I called my publisher and said, I cannot have this book published on connection when the entire planet Earth is disconnected. And I and I said, and I need to learn how they're leading through an era of disconnection. And so I went then back and found even more leaders to understand. And I think that, Deb, is the reason why the book made number two on Amazon and is a bestseller, because we're all trying to figure out how in the world do you meaningfully connect as a leader in a time that is still topsy-turvy? And I don't think we're ever going to go back. And it's so interesting to me because I go back to the 24-year-old of me And even though I was told there wasn't a place, that languaging will never exist in a playbook or any aspect of business acumen. I had an Irish Nana in my ear going at, you know, eight, nine years old, when you listen and you give, you will always receive back tenfold. That's a beautiful quote. When you listen and you give, you will always receive back tenfold. I'm writing that down. That's beautiful. And, you know, she was a real deep part of my life. I mean, born in England, came across the Atlantic with my great grandma with polio because they were going to amputate her leg. She wasn't an educated woman. But I'll tell you, there's a lot of people that have a PhD in common sense. And people can call that life experience, practical experience. It doesn't matter how you language it. I think we're finally going back to where we were before the Industrial Revolution. I really do. History repeats itself in fashion, in food, and I think leadership. It took a global pandemic. Yeah, to go back to really looking at people as full humans and not just the results that they're bringing to your bottom line and to your organization. And, and you're right. And that is heart-centered um, leadership. It's leading with kindness. You know, I have one of the lo- leaders that I profile in my book. I just had him on my podcast, Juan Martin. He's the global president of Kind Bars. And I happened to be interviewing him right before his big annual Zoom call with the president of Mars. Mars is still a privately held company of M&Ms and and pet food. And they bought Kind Bars from the founder, Daniel Lubetsky, who's on Shark Tank. And anyhow, Juan Martin is the global president. And I said, tell me, Juan, I said, how are you going to be on on this annual performance? How are you going to be evaluated? So how many bars did you sell? Because I'm a business school professor. I'm like, how many bars did you sell? He says, and he's got this beautiful European accent. He says, no, Michelle, it is not the bars. He said, we're trying to make the world a kinder place. I said, come on, how do you measure that? He said, well, my goal last year was 250 million acts of kindness. 
He said, we fell short, but I know we're going to hit it this year. We have campaigns. We have found there's research that shows that one act of kindness produces seven more acts of kindness. We feel that if you're kind to your body and you put in kind ingredients that make you feel good and you're kind to others and we're kind to the planet, that we're really making the world a better place. And and that's when I, I said to him, I said, you know, I've been trying to deconstruct connection now for years. And I think connection and kindness are, are very, very similar. They are. That's fascinating to me. And, you know, it's interesting because when I turned 50, I became a yoga teacher and I wanted to become a yoga teacher for two reasons. One, because I loved yoga and I thought, why not pursue it to the level of teaching? And I only would teach people with disabilities or elderly, those who weren't physically or mentally able because yoga is for everybody. I didn't want it to have a barrier, but the definition of yoga is science of the mind. So before you sit down to get on your yoga mat or meditate or whatever that looks like for you, the term in Sanskrit is you set a sankalpa. Well, a sankalpa is an intention. So I think connection comes from intention because you're looking to behave in a heart-centered way and yes, there may be transaction of a business relationship, which is cemented with a, a fiduciary principle, but it's not reciprocated in a way that I did this for you. What are you going to do for me? Heart-centeredness has a place and it's right in the center. It's the nucleus of that connection. You are so right. And I finally figured out that connection requires, meaningful connection requires an energy of reciprocity. Mm -hmm. So kind of going back to pre-industrial age, I think that in business, we just got so transactional, mm -hmm. the command and control and transactional and just doing so much and people were just frazzled, absolutely frazzled and, and really had lost a lot of meaning and satisfaction and happiness. And, and you know, it's interesting, the story you, you told, Deb, of being 24 and being told that love and, and the language you used were not a part of organizations. I remember one of my colleagues, he said, what is your, what is your word? I said, my word is joy. His joy, joy. And he was just so joy doesn't belong in, in the office place. And, and, and I really feel that we've taken back some of that agency to say, we want joy. We want satisfaction. We want meaning. We want connection. We want kindness. And so I feel like my mission right now is just to get on, you know, all these beautiful podcasts and, and get the book in as many as hands, in many people's hands to say, we can make this workplace better. We deserve it. We can be happy. We can create these meaningful connections. Another word that you said that is so true, you were talking about yoga. To me, meaningful connection requires intention. It's just not organic anymore. And that's what people have to really wrap their minds around. They're like, why? Wait, Michelle, you're telling me I have to intentionally connect. Doesn't that just happen? It doesn't really happen anymore organically. You've got to be intentional. How are you going to create meaningful connection on this next Zoom call? I'll say, well, if you've got 100 people on your Zoom call, maybe use the breakout groups. 
and maybe ask a question about how did you spread, if kindness is a topic, ask the question, how did you tell me one act of kindness you did today and put them into breakout groups of four and give them time to meaningfully connect, make it intentional, and then come back together. I teach leadership on Monday nights and I try to do all of these things with my students on Monday nights. And so I had these little uh, stress heart balls, these red little stress balls in, in hearts. And I passed them out last night and I threw one to each student. I said, when you catch it, you got to tell us a kind act that you've performed since we've seen you last. And Deb, it was amazing how nice these students are. They're like, I gave $7 to a homeless person today because he had a sign saying he needed $7 and I happened to have it in my wallet and I gave it away. I gave my roommate a ride he needed to the mall 25 minutes. So, I mean, I just think that it's got to be intentional. It's intentional. And like I said, it's history repeating itself. It's beautiful. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to uh, switch over to my rapid fab four questions. No thinking we just the answers are just sitting at the top of that frontal lobe of yours, that brilliant brain. If I asked your family and friends to describe you in one word, what would it be? Positive. Favorite book can't be yours. Who's the author? How did it change your life? Brene Brown, The Gifts of Imperfection, changed everything. And I'm so grateful. Love that book. I'm granting you a wish to have dinner with a leader who's either living or who has passed. Who is it? And what's the dinner conversation? Barack Obama. I would just be fascinated. The things that he must have seen and the experiences and how hard he had to fight to get to where he got. I, I would love to hear more of his story. So before I ask you my last Fab Four question and close out the show, I just want to say thank you for your bright light, your greatness. I'm so happy Elaine connected us and you're an ally in this heart-centered arena. And I just look forward to our connection going forward. And I'm so, so grateful that you wanted to be on the show. Oh, Deb, this was absolutely delightful. And thank you to all of your listeners for tuning in today. Have a beautiful rest of your day. Okay, last question. Finish this sentence for me. Heart-centered leadership is? Meaningful connection. Thanks for joining me today on Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed the show today and learned some new tools for your leadership from our amazing heart-centered guest. And if you like the show, we would welcome a rating and review on whatever platform you listen to. And we would love to have any comments or feedback at any time. And if you want some more heart-centered goodness, head over to our daily blog, masteringtheheart.com.